I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, why today's 24-7 access to information and entertainment through our devices is diminishing our ability to stay on task, and it's only getting worse. Back in 2004, we found that attention averaged about two and a half minutes. 2012, we found it down to 75 seconds. And then up through 2020, we found the average to be 47 seconds. Distressing as this may sound, there are some age-old and simple tips to reignite our focus. The philosopher Wittgenstein said that he liked to peel potatoes. That That's very rote activity, but he got his best ideas doing that. You know, when we do this kind of simple rote activity, it might seem like we're doing nothing, but there's a lot still going on in our minds. Our dwindling attention spans, the science and path forward in an increasingly distracted and high-speed world. That's all coming up on Life Examined. We live in a culture of speed. Think about it. Although we often crave moments of quiet and boredom, the way we live is the complete opposite, fast-paced and jam-packed. And much of that frenetic way of living is linked to the internet, available 24-7 at our fingertips through our phones and computers. It's both a blessing and a curse, an endless and unlimited source of information, connectivity, and entertainment just one click away. TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, apps for games and food, newspaper subscriptions, and those endless emails, I, I could go on, but you get the point. We're constantly being bombarded by a minefield of distractions. So haven't we always been prone to being distracted? And why are some of us better able to focus? Over the last two decades, data scientist Gloria Mark has studied human attention and written about her findings in her new book called Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity. Gloria Mark is professor at the Donald Bren School of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of California at Irvine. It's great to have you. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. You've really become one of the great experts at understanding human attention. And I wonder if we if we were to go back, I mean, even further than we probably know fully, but to try and understand kind of cognitively how it is that we developed focus, but also how it is that we are so distractible too. What is it about the brain that seems to want to both engage in deep focus, but also have that deep focus kind of ripped away from us all the time. How, how do you understand that? So I would say it's very natural for the mind to have these different mental states. So, you know, if there's something that's uh, interesting to us, uh, if it meets a goal, because attention is very goal-directed, then we'll focus on it and we'll be engaged with it for a while. And this thing, whatever it is, does not have to be very challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be watching a YouTube video or social media or watching a film, you know, something that really holds our interest. Uh, on the other hand, um, what's also natural for the mind is to mind wander, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's just natural for us to uh, have other thoughts pop into our minds that captivate us, um, you know, imagine if you're walking outside, you're looking around, your your attention is very diffuse, you're looking at plants and trees and, you know, feeling, feeling the wind. And all of that just kind of is conducive for mind wander. And when mm -hmm. we're in front of our devices, there are so many things on our devices that lure us. Uh, you know, we see on the physical interface, we see tabs that can cue us to want to click on them and examine something more. Uh, if you have an internal thought, uh, something you're curious about, you can so easily go on the internet to satisfy that curiosity. So there, there are so many entry points when we're on our devices that can capture our attention, whether it's from some external stimulus and even notifications can, uh, can lure us into the internet, or whether it's from something within ourselves, mm -hmm. in which case we were just kind of driven to examine more about it on the internet. It's interesting as you as you were describing the way our brains work on the internet. I, I was thinking of this other interview we did on food and how kind of how processed 
fast food or like candy is so addictive to us. Part of it is because it's so colorful and it has such different sounds and it's crunchy and it's sweet and it's salt and it's salty. And that it was Michael Moss, who's a writer that reminded us that there's something in humans, which is we love novelty seeking. We love glittery things. We love different textures. We're very distracted by certain things like that. And it made me think <laughs> the way we eat this stuff in the modern day is very similar to how we consume things cognitively on our phone or the way you describe the internet. Do you, do you think that that applies here too? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So there are two very basic types of attention. Uh, one is what's called controlled processing. That's when we're very deliberate about what we're doing with our attention. So you're reading an article or you have a goal to search for information, right? That's controlled processing. But then there's also automatic processing. And so a notification that, uh, you know, appears on our screen, and especially if it just appeals to our basic emotions, you know, fear or surprise or happiness, this also captures our our attention. Mm. Just seeing your smartphone next to you on the table uh, triggers an automatic response. We, it's habitual. We just want to pick it up and swipe it open, and, and that's what we do. So there's a lot of different ways that our attention is captured. Mm. There's some really fascinating numbers that you've presented, and, and one is the number 40 seconds. What is What has 40 seconds become in the modern-day world? And talk about how we got to that number. Yeah. So 40 seconds is the median length of time that people spend on a screen, that their attention is on a screen. The average is 47 seconds. So, you know, we started uh, measuring this back in 2004. Um, At that time, we'd follow people around with stopwatches, observe them, and every time they switch their attention, we'd click on the stopwatch uh, and record it. Uh, In 2012, uh, we switch to computer logging so we could get more uh, objective, precise measures. Back in 2004, we found that attention averaged about two and a half minutes uh, on any window before people switched. 2012, we found it down to 75 seconds. And then starting from around 2016 up through 2020, We found the average to be 47 seconds, and others have replicated this as well. Um, And the median, that means the the midway point is 40 seconds. That means half of all the observations were 40 seconds or less. Hmm. So it's it's pretty short. How do you make sense of that number in terms of, of who we've become? In this modern era, and and what that what this means to us in terms of what our brains are doing, and I mean, I have a lot of other questions in terms of what this means for our, our mental health or how we think of ourselves. But but I'll just allow you to reflect on that number for a second. Well, you know, consider that we live in a socio technical world, and what I mean by that is that there are so many social influences as well as technical influences on ourselves. And so um, an example of a social influence is, you know, any kind of social media. We are social creatures. We seek out social rewards. And so this is what draws us to social media. And of course, there are technical influences. Uh, You know, social media uses algorithms. Uh, Take TikTok. So many young people are are just drawn to TikTok. The algorithm in TikTok is very powerful, and it learns very quickly what people like, feeds them uh, TikTok videos that is, they're only going to continue liking, and so it it keeps them glued to the site. So we have this interplay and this interaction between all these uh, other influences that go on in the world, along with the technical influences. People have different personalities. Some people are very good at self-regulation, uh, and a lot of people aren't. Mm. So, and and I will also say uh, the design of the internet itself maps on so well to um, to our 
our mind-wandering tendencies, right? The, the node and link structure of the internet makes it so easy for us to just, you know, joyfully ride through the internet, clicking on one link after another, as soon as a thought pops into our mind, we can so quickly access that information. Mm. A lot of this makes me think of of this aspect of the brain that, that you're talking about, that, that is, you know, seeking out this different stimuli, but also to me, one of the most convincing theories I think of happiness, which would be, right, the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi, the researcher, and the ideas of flow states, which are concentrated states, which are putting our brains in situations where we have to focus on a task that, that, is, that is just difficult enough to keep us engaged. And to me, we could see parallels to that, to writing novels, to figuring out great equations, to composing songs, to the things that are essentially what make culture culture, right? Or the things that make us, I think, happy when there's deep focus. And how do we kind of see then that interplay between knowing that we have, we have evidence that happiness is the other direction? It's, it's generally the different aspect of our brain. But then we also have 40 seconds of focus <laughs> that we have at the moment. So help me, help me work through that. Right. So the the 40 seconds of focus is when people are not in flow. Mm. Um, But one of the things that we found is that uh, information workers, which is, you know, a a big chunk of uh, people, you know, these are people who for a living work with digital information. We, We find that they rarely get into a flow state. And I don't blame the people. I mm. I blame it on the nature of the work. Yes. And you know, I I started out as an artist and I would get into flow regularly. I I could expect every day that I would get into flow. And then I switched over to science and I do a very different kind of thinking. I I do analytical thinking, you know, I do planning, I do analyses. I'm rarely in flow. You know, I might be in flow when I'm thinking of ideas. Once in a while, if I'm writing, I might get into flow. But most of the time, I'm not. It's not a bad thing to not be in flow. It's It can be very rewarding to, you know, to do this kind of analytical work that knowledge workers do. But it's just, it's, it's a different thing. I think that, um, you know, of course, for the day-to-day things that people do, if goals aren't really strong, if motivation isn't strong, when people are fatigued, and that's a really big factor, uh, it makes us more susceptible to distraction. Mm. And let let me say a little bit more about being fatigued. There's part of our mind, it's called executive function, and it is the CEO of the mind. Right, it helps us with decision making and a, a number of different things, but it also helps us filter out distractions. And when we get tired, when our minds get fatigued, uh, executive function can't do its job well, and it just opens us up to be distracted a lot more easily. Mm. That that's such an important point, and I I want to cling on to something you said a few minutes ago because this is a question I really wanted to ask you, which is that I, I of course have been very convinced about the nature of flow in my life because the things that I like to do like have conversations like this. I feel like I'm a hundred percent engaged in what is a creative process of talking to you, but it's also for me playing music or you know being out exercising things that require my attention, but. I think you've said something really important, which is that there may be most of the jobs out there or the way that our culture economically has been set up is that people don't have to be in flow states at work or they're kind of bored. Like I I feel that a lot of people live in a kind of half boredom state, which to me is not a happy place. It's a distracted place. And that you know, it could just be the romantic in me saying, I wish everybody could be in, in flow states, but maybe that that's also not possible. But it really seems like structurally, we don't even have opportunities to engage in that type of a mindset. Would you agree with that? Yeah, boredom is quite 
prevalent. And Mm. a lot of research shows that when you're bored, it's associated with negative affect. So Mm. it's, it's not a pleasant state to to be bored. And when you're bored, and this is something we found in our research, that people become more susceptible to distraction. Yeah. So when when people are in bored states, we found that they were more likely to do things like check social media or actually have face-to-face conversations, which which is not so bad. But they they sought out ways to relieve boredom. And and yes, boredom is quite prevalent, um, and you know it. It's not completely bad because when you're bored, uh, it does give your mind a chance to rest. And if your mind is just overtaxed and you're exhausted, you know, being bored is is not using cognitive resources, and so it kind of gives you a chance to kind of settle down, and uh, you know. Re- reset. It seems, though, that people can get into a vicious cycle. And I speak about this personally, that if I'm bored or tired, right, then I go back and I check Instagram more and Facebook more. But then could you explain that does being on social media or scanning around the internet, does that wear out the executive functioning? Because to me, it seems like it just creates this snowball that just gets worse. And then we're more distracted and then we're more tired and so on and so forth. Yeah, it it depends what what the social media is. I mean, if it's uh, if it's depressing you, if you're reading, you know, terrible stories that are making you really sad, yes, that that can really uh, fatigue you. Um, you know, if you're watching TikTok videos that are you know making you laugh, uh, that can actually you know it's very pleasant for people. In fact, we find that. Uh, people are actually happiest doing these kinds of very simple, easy, engaging tasks. They're, they're happiest when they're <laughs> uh, playing mindless games and scrolling through social media, happier than when they're doing you know, hard-focused work. And one reason is when you're doing focused work, it's stressful, mm-hmm. right? It's challenging, and it uses a lot of cognitive resources. So, you know, there's just a limited amount of time that we can spend doing this kind of hard focus. Mm. That's something that I've noticed when I've, you know, interviewed writers or creatives, which I've done for more than a decade now. A lot of them would say, and I feel very similarly sometimes before I do an interview, that the hardest thing is actually to get to the desk to do the hard focused work. Like, and I've often wondered if it's just because we know there's going to be it's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of energy and, and cognitive output to do the thing. But I guess I still feel like the thing, if you can get yourself there, is what makes us a little bit happier throughout the day. Yeah. So we also find that people have rhythms mm-hmm. in their focused attention. So they, you know, if you're if you're looking at people's level of focused attention throughout the day, it's it's not consistent. Uh, But we do see these kinds of peaks and valleys. And for most people, they they have a peak mid-morning and then another peak mid-afternoon. But it takes people time to kind of ramp up into that state of deep focus. Uh, There are, of course, individual differences, depends on a person's chronotype. If you're an early type, you're peak focus would be earlier. If you're a late type, your peak focus starts later. But, you know, people tend to do smaller, easier kinds of tasks. It's almost like they're they're greasing the wheels before mm. they really dive in to do hard work. Talk about the stress component of life these days. You've done some really interesting research around <laughs> email and inboxes and uh, strapping heart rate monitors on doctors. And uh, I'll let you talk about some of the studies, but I think it, it points to this feeling that I think a lot of us have, which is that the more we engage with things, let's say like, like email or our phones, that our stress levels may actually go up. That's right. That's that's exactly what we found. So first of all, we found a correlation between switching our attention when we're on a screen and stress going up. And this is based on using heart rate monitors uh, to measure what's called heart rate variability 
And then we also have logged computer activity, so we can actually look at Windows switching. But we've also done a lot of work with the email. And I would say probably the biggest source of stress when we use our digital devices is email. Mm. We find a very strong relationship between time on email and amount of stress. And uh, we, we find that people check email on average about 77 times a day. Um, it, this could this number could have actually increased from the time that we did the study, which was a few years ago. Uh, we also find we measured mood. Email very bluntly puts people in a bad mood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Full stop. E- email is is not pleasant. A few years ago, uh, I did a study where we cut off email in an organization for one work week, and. My goal was to see if we could get people to focus better and could we relieve stress? And the answer is yes. And so without email for that week, uh, the participants in the study focused significantly longer on on uh, their screens, um, but they also showed that they were less stressed. They, they wore heart rate monitors. They also, uh, in interviewing them, explained that they had more social interaction. And that could also have, you know, contributed to lower stress. So, um, you know, overall, email is is not great. It's it's a big chunk of our workday. Uh, and, you know, what, there's a lot of reasons why email creates stress. Uh, first of all, it's just an additional part of our workload, Right, we we have our normal workload, and then on top of that, we also have this task of answering our emails. And colleagues and managers expect that we're going to be on the ball and answering email and and Slack is as well. So you know, email represents work, and it creates a burden on people to have to answer emails. I think it's really interesting, though, how things like Slack or, you know, messaging on the Google platforms, like when I toggle between the two, they almost look like the exact same thing now, you know, (laughs) like what we've done suddenly with the way we enter office or, you know, message people remotely, it, 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 like it, they're beginning to mirror each other. One is kind of replacing the other. I know that's a bit of a specific question, but I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that perhaps we can extrapolate what you've learned from email into all these other ways that we're learning to just message each other all day long about work. And I think you've been very clear about saying that there needs to be boundaries with these things. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the thing about uh, communications like Slack and texting is they they work so much faster. So there are expectations that will respond very fast, right? With right. the email, there you have a bit of time before you, you know, are expected to answer the email. But you know, Slack and and texting happen in what I call near real time. Mm-hmm. When someone uh, sends you a Slack, you're you're expected to be on that very quickly. Do you think that organizations or companies are kind of aware of the stress around things like email or the stress around? whether it's said or unsaid expectations of answering emails or Slack messages after, say, the workday is over at six o'clock? What's your sense of these organizations? So I think some organizations are aware. So some organizations like uh, Allianz, which is uh, in Germany, have uh, set up a quiet time Hmm. so that there's a period of time during the day where people do not have to deal with electronic communications. But other organizations, I believe, they, they, they may be aware of the stress it causes, but they feel that it's a really big benefit to the company because people can exchange information so quickly. So they may not consider, you know, they, they may look at the trade-off and they may not think the trade-off is worth it to reduce email and Slack because they feel, you know, it's enabling people to become... Uh, you know, exchange information and results faster. And, you know, it's better for the bottom line. I I wonder if you could talk about any other research you know about 
that, that is linking kind of lack of attention, influences of social media. I mean, you mentioned TikTok. I mean, it's so interesting. You mentioned 40 to 45 seconds is kind of how long the average amount of time we'll spend looking at something like a screen, like a single screen. And that's how long a TikTok video is roughly. It's in that ballpark. But just ways that we're seeing this impacting who we are, our mental health, our, our sense of happiness. Uh, do you have any more that you could add to that conversation or seen any studies linking these things together? Well, it's, uh, it's creating a culture of, of speed. And we've mm. known this for a long time. This is, this is not surprising. And, you know, I've seen this manifest in other media as well. When TV and movies right, were uh, first starting out, their shot lengths were much longer. So people have been acclimated to seeing shorter shot lengths. Commercials have reduced in length. What I worry about is the effect that they're having on on kids, right? Hmm. And, you know, first of all, kids are learning that, you know, this is this is the expected behavior that Things are going to be fast and short. Um, they're also learning that spending a lot of time on screens is is normal behavior, mm-hmm. right? Um, executive function. What I talked about earlier is the the CEO of the mind. It's it's not mature yet for kids, and it doesn't mature until they're about ten years old. And so, you know, we're subjecting kids to all this uh, media stimuli. And, you know, their, their minds are just not ready to deal with that. And there are studies that show that um, kids who spend a lot of time on screens, for example, they're, they're less able to control impulsive behavior. We also find that it can affect uh, language skills in mm-hmm. kids if they spend a lot of time on screens, of course, this is somewhat offset if the uh, programs they're watching are educational. You know, I guess a, a broader effect that this has on society, and I'm thinking of kids, is that traditionally kids used to be influenced by their parents mm-hmm. and by their friends. That's where you know they they learned from people in person around them, and now uh, a big part of children's influence is what they're getting on the internet, what they're getting from movies, from from YouTube, from, uh, you know, if, if, if very young kids use social media, um, what they're getting from that. So uh, it's, it's just a very, very different culture that that's coming about. I think you've pinpointed what I see among my friend parents is, is maybe the most controversial, complex, emotional dilemma of parenting, which is the extent to which you introduce and allow screens to young children. Like th- this, I just, it's such, a, it's such a massive topic because it seems that we don't quite know what the long-term impacts are yet. I mean, maybe you have more data that you can talk to us about, but... Um, I mean, I just want to—I I just want to name that I think this is where parents feel very, very lost, um, are trying to figure it out, are trying to make the best decisions they can. But is there anything else? I mean, you would tell parents: Are there any rules, any thoughts, any limitations that you feel kind of certain about at this point in in terms of research you've seen? Yeah. So there are some things. So probably one of the most important things is that parents need to set a good example for kids. Hmm. And the the problem is that parents are subject to the same kinds of social forces as their children are. So, you know, parents are using their screens, they're using their smartphones, uh, when in fact, their kids are around, and they should be paying attention to kids. So I would say one of the first things is to learn how to be a good role model for for your children. Mm. Um, another thing I would say is sleep is so important for kids. You know, the blue light from screens can interfere with sleep. And so it's really important to teach kids good habits 
good bedtime habits. It's also important, of course, as you know, that kids should uh, look at screens in a, in a public area so parents can keep track of what kids are doing. Mm-hmm. I would also say that um, there's an opportunity cost that we need to think about. The time that kids are on screen, and you know, this doesn't just apply to kids, it applies to everyone. The time that we spend on screens is less time for doing other things. It's less time for having in-person conversations or for moving around the environment or for, you know, using our our bodies, understanding how our bodies move through space, which is an important part of development for kids. So it's really important to maintain that balance, right? Less time on screens, more time in the physical world. Yeah. And um, I guess a, another thing I would say is time limits are important. You know, the the ship has sailed. We We can't... Uh, keep kids away from tech completely. We can try. Uh, my kids were raised without TV. The, this was before the internet, but we managed to raise them without TV. But I think that um, you know a lot of schools are using online instruction, um, at least for part of the curriculum. So we need to teach limits to kids, and you know what what's the boundary of how much time they they can be on online. If you're just joining us, my guest this hour is Gloria Mark, professor at the University of California, Irvine, and we're discussing her book, Attention Span. We'll be back with part two after this short break. And a reminder that you can connect with us on Facebook or you can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian, where you'll find weekly reels, videos, and a whole bunch of other good stuff. This is KCRW. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author and data scientist Gloria Mark talk about how shorter attention spans are changing the way we consume media. And all of this is posing profound challenges to parents. So how do we learn to stay on task? Is there a way to lengthen our attention spans without disconnecting? We'll also discuss some more surprising research. Are workers more focused at home or in the office? The answer may surprise you. Let's jump back in. I now want to address something I think a number of us are thinking about as we've moved to remote work and how I think this intertwines with a lot of the conversations you and I are having about screen time. You, for example, looked at how um, compared to earlier eras, we're kind of at our desk more and more now, like 90% of our day is spent at our desk, whereas it used to be, I believe, 30% yes. years ago. Is that right? So that's yes. That's really interesting, and I, have ima- I imagine you know now that we're remote, we're kind of at our desks all day. But what remote work has also done has allowed people to do things that I know you would agree with, like maybe get up once in a while and take a walk down the street and be in nature for 20 minutes, or make it to that gym class they couldn't make it before. And it seems that we're dealing with a really big issue now, which is that we're probably at our desk maybe more, maybe less for some, but we're around less people throughout the workday, so maybe less social interactions. But we've opened up time for things that should be good for our attention span, like being outside or going to the gym or taking a pause and reading a book or whatever it is. So like, how do you see this cultural moment play out where I feel like there's arguments going in all different directions about whether where we are now is good or bad for us? Well, I think that's right. It's, you know, there, there are two sides to it. Uh, One of the other things that you didn't mention, and we did a study on, is how it affects motivation. Mm. And so we find that when people work remotely, they have a much tougher time uh, staying motivated. When they worked in person, 
they, you know, the the presence of other people helped motivate them. People send off signals, you know, they're working hard, and it influences us to, you know, to keep on our toes. Hmm. When people are at home, they don't have those kinds of signals. And so it's a lot easier to just kind of let yourself go. You, you might be distracted by housework that needs to right. be done. And so um, people have to put in an, uh, an extra amount of effort. On the other hand, like you brought out, you know, we don't have stress from com- commuting, mm-hmm. which is, you know, r- a really big advantage, right? Um, but, you know, the, the work day has extended, right? And the borders between work and personal life have become much fuzzier mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you might be doing some things around the house and then you go back to work. And as a result, maybe your work day has extended in hours. And so, you know, we're still learning uh, what these effects are and, you know, and, you know, people are experimenting with hybrid work as well. Uh, and that's another big question when people are continually changing schedules, right? Mm. You might work two or three days in the office, the rest of the time at home. How does this impact people's ability to work, their mood, their uh, workplace relationships? It's, yeah, it's kind of fascinating the way you pointed that out. I, I don't know if I've actually reflected on it, but I have, I am now, which is that, yeah, it's sometimes it's harder to get motivated when you're home alone, to get inspired, to, to kind of show up with a lot of energy. And, you know, you mentioned, for example, the importance of parents modeling good behaviors for children. Maybe I need someone like at work modeling being excited and passionate and telling me to, you know, go further into a subject. That, that stuff might actually be really important. Oh, I, I believe it's very important. You know, some people have adopted a technique where they have a Zoom partner while they work at home. Mm. So people are remote, but just seeing the presence of another person on a Zoom screen working can help a person motivate themselves. I know my, my students have done this when they're working on their dissertations, which is solitary work. They they would open up a, a Zoom screen and simply work alongside another person remotely. And they claim that it, it really helped keep them, you know, on track. I wonder if you can take a second now to address any any gender differences that have been studied when it comes to attention or attention spans. Because this is kind of the the anecdotal story that you hear often, which is that women are really good at multitasking and they can do five things at once and maybe that requires slightly more scattered attention or maybe it's a higher attention span. I don't know what it is, but that men are really good at just doing one thing, sitting down and, you know, making the widget or doing whatever. So is any of that true? Have you noticed any differences when we talk about gender and attention? So we we did do some research uh, looking at gender differences in interruptions. Hmm. And so let me ask you this. Who do you think self-interrupts more, men or women. Self-interrupts means you're, you're working on something, there's no external stimulus or cue, and just of your own volition, you switch and do something else. Who does that more, oh, men boy. or women? <laughs> I feel like I'm in trouble, whatever I say here. Uh, uh, women, I'm going to say. I'll say women. Uh, actually, men self-interrupt more. I knew I, knew I was going to be... <laughs> Turned here, yeah. Yeah, men men self-interrupt more. And who do you think, once they're interrupted, who do you think is faster to resume work, men or women, to resume the interrupted task? Who who's faster to resume? Um, Okay. Well, see, I'm stuck here. I'm I'm going to say men, and you're going to say I'm wrong. You're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's women. Women are faster. And you know, I have a, a a theory which uh, I would love to be able to test this theory. So it's, it's untested. But my theory, and this is just from speaking with a lot of women, is that they say to be perceived on an equal playing field with their male colleagues, they have to outperform, they have to go mm-hmm. above and beyond. And mm-hmm. so they really have to be, you know, hyper focused and uh, interrupt themselves less and get back to work faster. Interesting. 
well, we will be ready for that research when it comes our way. But, but, but I think, I think what you're saying is that we we're not right when we think of these kind of classical examples around attention that they don't really hold up in terms of a, a clear gender split. Uh, they don't, you know, based on on the research that we've done, um, you know. We've we've not seen gender differences in the tendency to multitask, mm. you know, switching attention between different tasks. Uh, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, or we haven't really seen much age differences, everybody multitasks. I wonder if you could also kind of help me work through another conundrum that I, I know I've personally been dealing with a lot um, because it, it, it maybe is similar to the the way we were discussing remote work versus in-person work, but it's around, it's around social media. And I, I have been asked and I've been doing a lot more of work of creating those short videos of being more present of, of trying to connect with people and where they are, which are on these apps essentially at this point. And we get a lot more traffic through things like Instagram videos. And I had this really nice idea when I started this that I would be able to kind of be a part of the conversation and make the things and then step away and preserve my time and my attention span. But I, I have failed completely. And I have seen my screen time rocket to a, a number that I'm embarrassed to even talk about. Um, I don't know how one does this game in a healthy way. Because on the other hand, I'll get somebody, like I had a sixth grade classmate stumble on a video and say that something that I was talking about in a video about how to become a better listener was really effective to them. And they brought it into their relationship. And I was like, wow, look look at this stuff. I'm, I'm finding new people to connect with about ideas. So what do I do with this as somebody who wants to be a part of the cultural conversation and meet people where they're at? But I, I know it is really, it is really impacting my attention span. And I think my happiness on a certain level too. Yeah, it's, it's really a dilemma because if we want to reach young people, right. uh, we, we have to go to where young people are and they're on TikTok, they're on YouTube. And, and that's where we'll be able to communicate with them. On the other hand, we're we're just reinforcing a culture of right. of short attention spans. So, you know, we have to teach people to to watch longer form media and I when I say media, I mean it very broadly. Mm. And I'm thinking of print media, right? Mm. Reading, reading books, re- reading magazines, re- reading things that are offline. And I, I really think that kids need to be taught skills in in reading offline. Um, you know, don't forget, uh, you know, TikTok and YouTube, they attract people through visual media, yeah. right? And it's so captivating, right? And and people become used to and, and crave this kind of visual appeal. And, you know, books with print don't have that. And so I think that kids need to spend time each day reading to, mm. to learn that they can create these kinds of visual images in their mind through their own imagination. And we have to, you know, let kids develop those skills. And, you know, again, it's an opportunity cost. The more time online, the less time they have to be able to um, learn how to, you know, use their own imagination. I think how this stuff is impacting the classroom is profound. I mean, I have a friend who's an English teacher uh, at high school, and they're starting to find papers that have been written by ChatGBT suddenly, right? And are having to sit with students and understand, like, okay, this is part of the future, and yet we're still really wanting students to go back to creating papers the slow, thoughtful way. You know, it's how do we how do we entice reading, but also understand that this technology probably isn't going anywhere. And I think that for educators, for parents, uh, researchers, I think we're in a really, really complex moment, if, if you would agree with me. The floodgates have opened, and, you know, AI is being used by people of you know, almost all ages. And, you know, it's, we we can't control it anymore. I mean, 
with my own students in my classroom, I, I always assign them to summarize articles. And <laughs> at the beginning of the class, I said to them, uh, you can't use chat GPT because I will know it. Uh, <laughs> of course, I was bluffing. There's no way I can know it. So finally, I, I said, okay, I'm going to change things. You're, you're going to write a summary of the article, then you're going to use chat GPT. And then I want you to revise your summary based on what you saw in the chat GPT. So they tur- the, the students turned in three different versions. Oh. And then I, I asked them to evaluate. And the students did not like chat GPT because they felt it just provided superficial results and it didn't really provide insight. And so what's interesting about the exercise these students did is it enabled them to see the difference Right. Whereas if students are just using chat GPT to write things, to summarize things, they're not able to really pick up the differences between what what they might produce on their own versus what uh, the AI generated content is. That's a really yeah, that's a really beautiful idea and example. And <laughs> to me, it's kind of hopeful about the human mind. Um, we only have about five minutes left here. And I, I, I want to now turn our attention to useful tips or ideas that you have when it comes to to the preservation of our attention spans or reclaiming attention spans or how we kind of can successfully move between deep focus and maybe kind of the shorter focus part of us. So what are some, some of the things that you prescribe that you would want to share with us? Yeah, so th- there are things we can do. So first, um, I practice what what I call meta awareness, which is an awareness of how our automatic attention is being used. And here's what I mean by that: there's so many things we do unconsciously. We switch our windows to go to social media. Mm. We pick up our phones to you know look at them. Um, learn to recognize these kinds of actions and probe yourself before you make that switch and ask yourself, is this going to provide value? Do I really need to go to social media now? Do I really need to read news now? Uh, chances are no, right? So what we've done is we've we've raised this unconscious activity to more of a conscious awareness, and then we can act on it and be intentional. Uh, another thing that I recommend is to practice forethought. And what that means is imagining our future selves. And so imagine your future self at the end of the day. Let's say you have a deadline to work on. You have a lot of things on your plate that you want to finish today. Think for a moment about yourself at the end of the day. How do you want to see yourself? And you know, chances are we want to see ourselves relaxing, having finished all that work, right? We want to, how do you want to feel? You want to feel happy. You want to feel fulfilled. You want to be with your family and friends. And so having a clear visualization of how you want your end of the day to be can really help keep us on track. Every time we have this urge to, you know, switch to do something that's, um, that, may not be helpful for us in getting to our goals. Uh, another thing is the importance of taking breaks. Because when we get fatigued, exhausted, it just makes us much more susceptible to distractions. And so we want to maintain control over where our attention is. We can't work straight through the day. We, you know, in the same way that we can't lift weights nonstop. We can't use our mind nonstop. We need to step away. We need to replenish the the limited attentional resources we have. And so breaks are so important. The the best break is going out in nature. And you know, being in Southern California, I admit it's a big advantage. You know, we, mm-hmm. we can go out and experience it. Um and then I would also say, um, think about designing your day. You know, I talked about attentional rhythms. Um, Understand when your peak focus times are. Uh, That's not hard to do. You you can keep a diary over a day and mark down the times that 
you know, you've been focused and, you know, do this over a period of days to kind of figure out what, what your peaks and valleys are in attention. And then instead of a, a to-do list of, you know, I have to do this task, finish it by 10 a.m., finish this by 11, design your day so that the hardest tasks, the ones that require the most creativity, you can do during those times that you know will be your peak focus times and you'll perform better. I know that you you also just really believe in doing, when we take breaks, just maybe really simple tasks, you know, folding the laundry or or uh, knitting or just something like that. You have a great anecdote you tell of, of the philosopher Wittgenstein who would peel potatoes, right? And say that's yes. where his best <laughs> ideas came from. Is that right? That's right. Uh, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said that he, he liked to peel potatoes. That That's very rote activity. But, you know, he got his best ideas doing that. You know, when we do this kind of simple rote activity, it might seem like we're doing nothing. But there's a lot still going on in our minds. You know, mm. if you have a really tough problem, one of the best things you could do is step away. And there was a psychologist, Wayne Wicklegren, who wrote a book called How to Solve Problems. And he talked about how ideas can incubate, even though we're not actively working on them. And so, you know, step away and, you know, let this problem just kind of incubate in your mind while you're doing something else. But this other thing you're doing should be really easy, Hmm. right? So that you can leave some cognitive resources to kind of slowly work on that problem in the back of your mind. Well, it's been such a wonderful pleasure to be joined by Gloria Mark, professor at the Donald Wren School of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of California at Irvine and the author of the book, Attention Span. Thank you for sharing your research and writing with us and and going on these fun little thought journeys with me. I really appreciate the time, Gloria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. We'd love to hear from you on this topic. Do you feel that your attention span is shrinking? Do you have any tips or tools for regaining focus? Join us on our Facebook group. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Or you can also connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. There you'll also find weekly reels and other ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. Thanks again for joining us on KCRW. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again soon. Take care.